Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Continue to do your, your own thing your own way, and don't expect for it to drop into your lap. You've got to chase it down. That's what it's all about. The overall encompassing, you know, nature of the entire year of 2010 was me getting the hell out of my own way, quite frankly. Stop believing my own BS and genuinely start bringing on board people that could do jobs and, and, and tasks way better than I could. I'm genuinely passionate about helping people build profitable, future-proof businesses around their brands because if you're not making money out of it, it's just a hobby. You don't need another hobby. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatron, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today's guest is Chris Ducker. I know Chris for 10 years and have never actually met him. So about 10 years ago, he started blogging about how he was going to give himself one year to be free physically from his brick and mortar business and become a virtual CEO. And one year later, he did it. And that really motivated me to figure out what he did so that I can do the same thing with my brick and mortar business. And then it occurred to me that I'm not the only one who has this challenge. So I wanted to share this interview with you so we can all learn together. So who is Chris? Chris is a serial entrepreneur that owns one of the most effective outsourcing companies in the world. He has over 400 full-time employees. He's also a trusted international business mentor, keynote speaker, podcaster, blogger, as well as the founder of Upreneur.com, which is a leading personal brand business education company. Chris also hosts the annual Upreneur Summit, which is held in London each November. So in this conversation, we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about how he leveraged outsourcing to get him out of being physically in his business. Business. We talked about what living in the Philippines is really like, and we talked about how to build your brand online in an authentic, no BS way, and so much more. So you can find Chris on the socials at Chris Ducker, or as he says it, Ducker. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode and tag me and Chris. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Chris Ducker. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, my man. It's good to be here. You got it, man. You know, I am beyond pumped to have you on the show. And I was thinking about this the other day. We have been friends for <laughs> 10 freaking years. It's, I mean, if it's not, it's pretty close to it. I don't know whether it's exactly 10 years, but I think we first started conversing in 2009, mid-2009, I think. And we never <laughs> met, never which met. is just weird. <laughs> I'd like to start with, quote, that your dad scotch-taped to your door. Mm. Can you tell me the story of why he scotch-taped the quote, the way to being nothing is to do nothing? Yeah. So I was a bit of a loser, you know, in, in, my, in my early teen years. Um, I was probably about... Oh, maybe four, I'm going to say maybe four, two, maybe 15 years old when he scotch taped that. He wrote it on the back of a business card and, and, and stuck it on my bedroom door because I was bumming off. I was, we were supposed to be doing our mock exams, which I guess sort of are practice exams for our kind of high school. Like in the UK, we have the GCSE. I think in the US, you have the SATs. It's a similar sort of type of time in, in, in your high school life when you've got to take them and all that kind of stuff. And I was just bumming off. I was skateboarding, playing basketball and hanging out with girls, you know, um, in that order, quite frankly, that was what I was, that's what I was focused on doing. That's what I wanted to do every day. And, um, you know, he had tried and tried and tried, he, you know, shouted and yelled at me and tried grounding me and doing all that sort of silly stuff. And, uh, I paid very little attention. And then one day I came back from, I think I'd been out shooting hoops and, uh, I saw this, this business card taped onto my door. I turned, ripped it off and turned it over and I read the quote. And he, we never talked about it again 
after that, uh, I just snapped out of it and started working. And I was I was lucky to pass almost all of those mock exams. And then about six or eight months later, when I took the actual exams themselves, I passed all but one. So, uh, you know, obviously his his nonverbal kick up the arse worked a lot better than all the verbal attempts. <laughs> so that was, you know, that was the way it worked, you know? Yeah, he knew his kid. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? He knew that yeah. his kid needed a kick in the ass and he gave his kid a kick in the ass. There you go. Yeah, simple as that. Can you tell us where you grew up and how you would describe your childhood? Well, I grew, I grew up in Wimbledon. Um, almost everybody on the planet knows of it because of the two-week tennis tournament, you know, in the summer. But, you know, Wimbledon to me was just home. It's still home. It's my old manor, as we would say in London. Happy childhood, you know, definitely very happy, full of uh, Star Wars battles in the back garden and, um, you know, heading down to uh, the high street on the weekend with the pocket money to buy everything from, you know, chocolate and sweets to, uh, you know, Trump collector cards and football stickers and all that sort of fun stuff. I had a great childhood. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, going into my going into my early teens, though, my dad would travel quite a bit. He was an architect and uh, he, he would work over in Saudi quite a bit um, in the first half of the 80s. So it was a little tough at times. Uh, me and my brother would, uh, you know, sort of play up a little bit for my mum. Uh, but eventually, uh, dad came back mid-80s and, um, you know, kind of got back into things. And uh, But no, a friendly, friendly, happy childhood, you know. Nothing. Have you ever been to Saudi? I've never been. No, I've never, I've never been to, well, I mean, I've been to Dubai um, twice uh, and I've uh, flown through Doha probably half a dozen times in my life, but uh, never actually uh, been to Saudi before. Or he, he was based out of Saudi and Riyadh and Jeddah. They were his three big spots. And I remember he used to send back these really cool kind of 3D postcards. You know, like when you, when you turn the cards, it kind of goes to a separate, like a different picture kind of thing. And mm -hmm. uh, he used to send these postcards, you know, every now and then. And um, yeah, that was what I remember of people sitting on camels and stuff like that. <laughs> I have this weird fascination with Saudi. I'm terrified to go there, and I, yeah, I just am, uh, for lots of different reasons, but I really, really want to go to see what it's like, you know? I have to be honest. I, 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 it's not like I've got anything against that part of the world or anything, but I'm, I'm really not all that interested in visiting. It's kind of weird. Like my wife is a yoga instructor. She's a, a, a very devoted yogi. And, uh, you know, even though I practice a couple of times each week myself, I, I do it for flexibility. I'm not into the spiritual side of it at all, quite frankly, but she wants to go to India and she wants to do, she's an Ashtanga uh, yoga practitioner. So she wants to do this thing called Mysore where you go and you kind of practice on your own, but you've got one of the grandmasters or whatever walking around sort of adjusting your positions and everything. And she's all amped up on the idea of doing that one day. And I'm like, well, you can go with your mates. You and my wife are the exact same way. So me and your wife have the same kind of thing. I am fast. I have a, another love affair with India. But everybody I know who goes to India, they land there. And it's either one of two things. Either they land there and they think that this is the most amazing place they've ever been to. Or they go, get me the hell out of here. <laughs> right. So around 18, you were tending bars. You were doing telemarketing. What makes a good telemarketer and what's the playbook to be a good bartender? Wow. God, we're going all over the place here. Uh, this is good. I knew, I knew this was going to be a good chat. I'm going to throw it out there. I knew this was going to be good. <laughs> what does it take to be a good bartender? Actually, I, I will say, for want of a better kind of description here, they're both kind of two in the same kind of role and job to a certain degree. I mean, what makes a good bartender is, you know, the gift of the gab, as my mum used to say. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if, if you can, you know, chat up the ladies and, and you know, uh, smooth talk the guys and, you know, you get great tips at the end of, of, of the night when people are sitting in their tabs. And, you know, you put on a little bit of a show and we used to do, the, you know, a little bit of the old Tom Cruise cocktail thing and behind the bar and all that sort of type of stuff. And it's really, the bar work for me back in the day, it was extra money, plain and simple. But it was also a bit of a lifestyle. Like I genuinely enjoyed, genuinely enjoyed working behind the bar because I'm a people person and I like being around other people. You know what I mean? So it, it mm -hmm. was, you know, I think a lot of what I was doing on the phone translated to that role and vice versa as well. Um, what makes a good telesales person, what makes a good salesperson, period, is just all out tenacity, uh, not taking no for an answer. 
you know, just, just dial in those numbers, particularly on the, I mean, you know, the phone, selling on the phone is not an easy job. And it's obviously gotten harder and harder and harder over the years. I think it was a lot easier before, you know, the internet came into play and people now, you know, we don't even want to pick up. I mean, I, you know, God, why are they phoning me? Why is somebody phoning me? Why can't they just text me? Why can't they WhatsApp me? Why, why is my phone ringing? You know, we don't, we're kind of phomophobic now. Whereas I think before you, it was a lot easier to get somebody on the telephone and, and pitch them your wares. Uh, but I think ultimately, you know, the tenacity and, and, you know, the ability to understand that if you've got a solution, and this has never changed, right? I, th- I live this every day of my life now as a business builder and owner. If you have a solution to somebody's problem, it is your duty to put it in front of them. Like that was my mindset. If you had a secondhand boat that you were wanting to sell, you needed to buy my classified ad space because I knew that every Thursday, Auto Trader was coming out and you were going to be in front of thousands of readers and you would probably end up selling that boat. So, you know, it, it was, it was something that's, um, that was ingrained in, in, inside of me at a very young age is, you know, the importance of relationships and serving people and that sort of type of thing has definitely translated all the way through my adult life for sure. Well, speaking of the young age, tell me about the time that you flew to Hong Kong around 97 with a video camera. Why did you do that? I did that because back in the seat, you're going, you're going deep here. This is a, <laughs> either, either you've got the best research assistants on the planet here, or you genuinely have probably remembered every conversation we've had in the last decade. <laughs> I, uh, so, so back in the, probably from around 94 to right up to 2000, uh, or very late 99, I was actually quite heavily involved in the Hong Kong film industry back in the UK. So I would travel to uh, Hong Kong quite regularly, the first trip being in 97. Um, and we would put on, you know, kind of late night, midnight double bills at, you know, Chinatown cinemas in London. And sometimes we would bring some of the actors over to the UK and do special appearances with them and things like that. We did a, a great event in 1999 with Jet Li. We, we screened Romeo Must Die, which was his kind of big breakout movie uh, for the United States sort of type of film market. And, you know, bear in mind, this was like, you know, pre-blogging and podcasting and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And we had a website. We had a website. I built it myself. And, you know, we would we would sort of collect email addresses from people and have it in a Word document. And we would email out people and, you know, that sort of type of thing. So, But why do you love Hong Kong movies so much? It was the kind of action, you know, it was the action that those films really, you know... See, Hollywood wouldn't be anywhere close. Like, John Wick wouldn't be around if... Jackie Chan and John Woo weren't doing their thing 15, 20 years ago. So, you know, it, it, a lot of what you see in Hollywood today, they've been doing it in Hong Kong for decades, literally decades. And I, I just, I love the action. I love I loved the high-octane action of it all. Who would win the fight? Jackie Chan, Jet Li, or Bruce Lee? If we threw the three of them in, who's going who's gonna to be the last man standing? Bruce. All right, Jackie or Jet? Jet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so a few years Later, you found yourself in the Philippines and you were working for a UK bank who had a presence there and you're, uh, you wound up there because you were uh, asked to train their telemarketing outfit. What was the first reaction you had when you landed in the Philippines having come from London? The, the, the exact first thing that I felt when I, when I arrived, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I walked out of the airport and the humidity hit me like nothing I've ever experienced. And, and bear in mind, I'd been in Hong Kong, and, and Hong Kong is a really humid city. Like, you can go from a hotel lobby with a pair of shades on out into the street, and you'll instantly fog up. The humidity level is that high. Um, and in Manila, it was even worse. I mean, I, I traveled into Manila at first. I, la- I remember I landed at night. Uh, I had a car picking me up and I sat in the back of the car. It took about an hour and a half to get from the airport 
to where I was staying, which I was told if there was no traffic, it would have taken probably no more than 30, 30 minutes. Um, so, you know, even at 10 o'clock at night or whatever it was, there was a ridiculous amount of traffic there. And I just remember thinking to myself, geez, what the hell have I done? <laughs> I've left, you know, I've left this great job in London to come and work over here. But you know what? Without getting too personal, I had a couple of very, very big life events happened in the 12 months before I made that decision. And I felt like I needed some new space. I needed some new environment. And so uh, I decided to um, to go ahead and take take the shot, take the risk, so to speak. And I'm glad I did because, you know, here I am still 17 years later. I'm still here, although... I am moving back to the UK later this year uh, with the family. I've, I've been here for 17 years. I've loved every single minute of it. Um, the Filipino people are incredible. The country has been very, very good to me, and I've got a lot to uh, be thankful for over here. We're going to get to that in a second. I thought you were actually living in London now. I didn't know that you were still there. Okay, so we're going we're to talk about that uh, in a bit because I have a couple questions on that. But let's first fast forward to around 2010, which is where I first heard of you. And it was... Around the time that you started a company that was called Virtual Staff Finder, yes. what was Virtual Staff Finder and why did you start it? Well, what Virtual Staff Finder was and still is, is a company that bridges the gap between busy, stressed out, overworked entrepreneur and high quality, experienced Filipino virtual assistant. So ultimately, we're a recruitment company. Uh, you tell us what you need, we go out and get it for you for a fee. And, um, you know, like you said, we, we actually launched that company, I believe, in August of 2010, off of a blog comment, I will say. You know, here we are all these years later. I reckon, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, Rob, but I think if, if, if I had to kind of take a bit of a shot in the dark, I'd say, I reckon we've probably had 6,000 people hired in that period, close to it. So let's talk a little bit about outsourcing. I don't want to get too deep in it because it's been beaten down uh, pretty hard. And I know that that's the questions that you get asked the most. And there's plenty of resources out there for people to get it. But I do have a couple of low-hanging fruit questions I want to ask you. Sure. Who should outsource and who shouldn't? Well, I mean, the the quick uh, answer to that is, I think everyone should outsource. <laughs> Quite frankly, um, depending on you know where you are in your journey as an entrepreneur. I mean, if you're a if you're a, a small to medium sized business owner, the chances are that you can get you know very very high quality individuals on your team for a fraction of the cost if you were to you know hire them locally. The other thing about outsourcing, Rob, is that it, it's no longer about India and the Philippines anymore. It's about Eastern Europe. It's about the US and Canada and the UK and Australia and everywhere else. I mean, what it's led me to be able to do as I've continued to grow and build my businesses, uh, all of them have outsourced staff attached to them in some capacity because I'm no longer you know, at the whim of geographical constraints. Well, you know what's interesting? I've always heard that Philippines are the best place to go because they, you know, they speak American English, the currency conversions are good. As a rule, their personalities lend themselves to just really wanting to help and serve, etc. But what you're making me think of, which I hadn't thought of before, is that there are certain countries that may be better at certain things for different reasons. Like for example, you'll get a great content writer you know, probably in Canada than you would in maybe Eastern Europe because it's, you know, they speak that kind of English. They can do a better job at that. But conversely, you can have somebody in an Eastern Bloc country who could do a great job in web development, et cetera. So Absolutely. it's specific. Yeah. yeah, I like that. What are the top mistakes that people make when it comes to outsourcing? Uh, hiring one person to do, you know, multiple people's jobs. You know, I always say you've got to hire for the role not for the task. Definitely, without a doubt, continuing to micromanage people, not getting out of their own way uh, once they hire someone to do a job and kind of hanging off their shoulder like a virtual vulture almost. And I think, you know, the other thing is is everybody thinks that outsourcing is a magic pill that they're going to pop and everything's going to work perfectly from day one. It's not that case at all. Uh, you must onboard your staff properly. You must have your SOPs or your standard operating procedures and processes in place. And and you must train them. If you don't do that, how can you expect for them to do a good job for you? 
Yeah, people think it's a magic pill. I just hired somebody and they're going to understand everything and it's all going to work out great. Yeah. What are the typical costs for a great VA? I mean, you know, this this is always the big question. How much does it cost? And it really depends on so many different parameters. So, you know, what are they going to be doing for you? How long have they already been doing it for other people? Like, what's their experience level like? There's how many hours are they going to be working for you? There's so many different parameters. But I mean, as a general rule of thumb, a general VA, someone to help you manage your inbox and your calendar and your social and update your blog and upload to YouTube and, you know, all that kind of stuff. For a really, really, really good VA that's got, you know, three to five years under their belt already to help you do that kind of work, you're probably looking at about a thousand bucks a month nowadays. Now, if you'd have asked me that question four years ago, it would have been probably $600. But these guys have obviously, um, they've developed their skills over time and they know that they are in demand um, and they know they can do the job properly. And so, you know, they now, they're, they're charging a lot more than what they used to. But I mean, again, you know, flick of a switch, it's uh, a lot less than what you would pay if you were hiring somebody locally. What are you personally not outsourcing and why? I'm not outsourcing anything that only I can do. And then that's my general rule of thumb. So, I mean, I have become petrally lazy. <laughs> Over we're going to talk about that. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, not lazy as in, you know, I don't want to get out of bed in the morning, but lazy as in if something hits my inbox or lands on my desk, the first thing I always ask myself, can someone else do this? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I won't do it. I will very rarely, very, very rarely do it because I believe that I should be doing things only I can do, like creating content, writing, or shooting video, or recording podcast episodes, or replying to, uh, you know, questions and, and, and uh, you know, requirements for feedback inside of the Youpreneur community forums, or, you know, hosting a webinar, or being a guest on someone's show, or preparing for a live keynote gig, you know, stuff that only I can do. Uh, and I think, um, you know, that as a general rule of thumb is, is a good way for, for me to, to run my businesses. I mean, clearly it's, it's not stopping me from continuing to grow either as an individual entrepreneur or as a personal brand or as a business owner. So, you know, I just continue with it. If something's ain't broken, I ain't going to try and fix it. Let's get into the weeds a little bit on that. So you, you get the inbox message. You ask yourself immediately, do I have to handle this? You say, no, I don't have to handle this. What's the next action you take to make sure that you never have to do that again? Well, look, at this point in my life, almost everything that happens on a regular basis has already got a standard operating procedure in place for it. Uh, it's already got a training video in place for it. It's already got a Google Drive document attached to it as a process. Um, so I will, you know, depending on what the task is, I will send out a quick message via Slack to that particular team member or to that project manager who will then go ahead and delegate it to part of their team. And uh, they'll go ahead and, and do the work based on whatever instructions I give them. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd rather spend five minutes typing out a couple of paragraphs of instructions on a task than, you know, spend 30 minutes doing it myself. Does that make sense? Of course. When was the when was the most recent time that you remember that you didn't have it as a part of your system, and you went, "Whoop! I got to add this one to the system." Is there anything that comes to mind recent? I'm going to say probably about six or seven months ago, we were in the process of selling tickets for our inaugural Upana Summit, which took place in London last November, and we were in the process of um, doing a price increase from the first pricing level, uh, which was our super early bird, into the early bird, which was like you know like a hundred bucks extra. And I sent, I just blindly sent off a Slack request to one of my GVAs to go ahead and get into Samcart, uh, get the link for the product, for the more expensive product, and to go ahead and update it on the WordPress site. And within about five minutes, she came back to me and she said, Boss, I, uh, 
I don't have access to Samcart. I, I don't know how to do this. And I'd realized that I was actually the one that had set up the first uh, product with Brian Moran's help actually via Skype <laughs> a few months before that. And um, I, hadn't, I hadn't delegated the process out. So at that point, I think I was actually in a hotel I'm going to say I was in a hotel in America somewhere, and I remember explicitly uh, making myself uh, an in-room hotel espresso and sitting down and writing out the process document for it so that I wouldn't have to do it again. Well, I think what's interesting about this is that you've become so good over a, you know, a certain chunk of your life at writing you know, standard operating procedures, getting the whole system organized, that it's rare now when that's not in place. Yeah. And I mean, particularly because of the type of business that, that I'm in and that we are in as content creators, marketers, online product marketers and sellers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same stuff, you know, Rob? I mean, it's, I do the same stuff like every day. Oh, yeah, it's, it's rinse and repeat for sure. Yeah, totally. And so it's rare. You know, it's it's very, very rare, uh, unless obviously we're beginning, beginning a brand new project or something, and that's a different ballgame. But I mean, you know, day to day, it is it is rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And so, you know, I, I think I've been blessed with, A, getting to the point where I did burn out in 2009 and things had to change going into 2010 and I was forced into a corner where I had to become a master delegator. And then B, I've been blessed because I've had the opportunity to just meet and hire and work and grow with some of the most amazing uh, employees and, and, and partners and, and team leaders that I've ever come into contact with. Don't get me wrong, I've hired and fired a whole crap ton of people. But, um, you know, the people that make the core management team at Team Ducker are, you know, I, I would have thought the average tenorship right now is probably at about maybe six years. Two or three of my higher uh, upper management team have, have been with me eight, nine years already. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be able to have some great people around me. All right. So speaking of the team, so you are living in a town uh, in the Philippines called um, Cebu, I think is how yep. you say it. Um, town is a city. You... It is a real city rather than a smaller town. Okay. Okay. Can you describe what the city is like and why you love it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I will say, I will say I have fallen out of love with it. I don't dislike it, but I don't love it as much as I used to. And the reason why is because I haven't seen enough change, positive changes take place. Right. So you know, the, the road system hasn't gotten any better, even though it desperately needs it to be done. Uh, you know, there's still just the same couple of good cinemas. There's still just the same, you know, handful or so of really, really good restaurants. There's a lot of things that, that, that have changed, like the internet's gotten way better you know, much, much, much better compared to where it was three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, I think the quality of the individuals coming into the workplace out of, you know, university and college is much higher than what it was 10 years ago as well, which is good from an employer's perspective. Um, but I mean, Cebu as a city is, it's a little provincial. It's not what you might think of, like, it's not Makati, it's not Manila, it's not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of skyscrapers, right? 50 floors up like, like it is in Manila. There are tons of great big office buildings here, don't get me wrong, particularly in the IT park center where all the call centers are and things like that. But but I mean, it, it's just for me, I think what it is more than anything else also is that as my younger kids, you know, I've got Charlie who's who's nine, almost 10. And now we've just, you know, welcomed Cassandra into our life about six months or so ago. There's more that I want them to experience than just, you know, fun birthday parties with their friends, the swimming pool uh, out the back and, you know, you know beaches right? There's, there's a lot more. So when we go to the US or we go to the UK and we do museums and day trips and all that sort of stuff, that's the culture side of things that Cebu, quite frankly, is like very little of. So I want, you know, I want to be able to, you know, give that to my kids as they, as they, as they grow up. Um, and I, quite frankly, you know, I miss the live music scene in the UK and in London, particularly. I'm a big blues fan, a big jazz fan, 
big funk fan. And so, you know, Ronnie Scott's and the Jazz Cafe in Camden and all those cool places. Like, it's rare for me to go out and enjoy a really good night out, um, you know, like I used to virtually a couple of times each month. So it, it's, I think it's just the time has come, quite frankly, to just kind of get back to, you know, the roots a little bit and, and just enjoy it. Enjoy life a little bit more. It's pure lifestyle. It's the only reason we're moving back. It's pure lifestyle. Are you driving that train or is your whole family driving the train? That's a really, really good question. From one husband and father to another, I appreciate the question a lot. I think initially I was probably driving it a couple of years back when we first started talking about it. But I think as the couple of years have gone by and we've found the property that we've purchased in Cambridge back in the UK, you know, Mrs. Quack, as I affectionately call her on social media, is uh, is more and more excited about it. The kid, I mean, the, the younger one, Charlie, is is just, he just can't wait. He just can't wait to get back. So um, I think initially I probably was, but uh, it's certainly a team effort now, that's for sure. Do you think there'll be culture shock for the kids? Kids, no. Mrs. probably. Yes. Mm, I mean, oh, that's you know, right. She's from the Philippines. She's from the Philippines, right? So this, that's she's right. from Cebu. This is all she's ever known. And so, you know, I, I, I think the kids will be absolutely fine. I don't see any problems at all with them in any way, shape or form. The missus, well, you know, that's, that's yet to be seen. I mean, she has been to the UK multiple times. We've spent multiple weeks and months there before at any one time. We've rented, you know, Airbnb places for, you know, eight, 10 weeks at a time before and things like that. So she's got a feeling of, of what it's like to get to the grocery store and go shopping for, you know, uh, kids' clothes and and enjoy a good night out at a nice restaurant and hit the movies on the weekend and do the museums and all that kind of fun stuff as well. So, you know, she's got a good taste for it. But, you know, when you're there and you don't have your mum and dad, uh, you know, a 10-minute drive away, kind of just the familiarity of everything around you, uh, I, I think, yeah, we'll see how things, uh, we'll see how things go. You know, but uh, she's excited, that's for sure. Why not live in the States? <laughs> is, it purely a, is it purely a political decision? No, not at all. I, I love the United States. I, I think the U.S. is amazing. It's an amazing country. I, I, I have never had a negative experience in the United States before. Ever. And I spent a lot of time there, as you know. I mean, clearly, I've not wanted to be anywhere near you guys, but um, I've spent. Well, that's, <laughs> but that's the reason why I'm asking you. You know, other than not wanting to be near us, you're always not always, but you're here in the states a lot. I am, and so I was. I was curious to know why not. You know, why not uh, get a house next to Pat Flynn? You know, right in San Diego. You got you. You know, it's beautiful. It's eighty degrees, seventy degrees year round. No humidity. Obviously, a little more expensive than the Philippines, but why not do that? Well, you know, it's funny. And I mean, Pat, I mean, our families are very, very close. We call each other our second family. So, I mean, we have had that discussion. Um, and I'm not ruling out the idea of actually picking up a condo in San Diego in the next year or two. Uh, that is on on the cards, so to speak. Um, we've talked about it, and I've even gone and looked at a few places in the last 12 months as well over there. So, it, it's always been something we've talked about. I mean, I just... Just to be very, very frank and honest, I just miss England. I miss mm -hmm. my country. I miss my queen. Yep. I miss everything about, you know, England and what it's meant to me as a Brit all my life. And I think that being being away from the UK for as long as I have been away, um, my love for my country has grown over that period of time. And you know what the thing was? For the longest time, Rob, I mean, I, mean, I would say a good 10, 12 years, when I would travel back to the UK, I would enjoy my time there. But by the end of that two-week trip or whatever the case may be, I would be itching to get on that Cathay Pacific flight and head back to Asia to get back here. But I noticed about five years or so ago, that stopped happening. And I found myself increasingly upset and more sad about leaving the UK after a visit and coming back here. And that's something that I kind of ignored for the first couple of years. And then it got to the point where I had to talk to my wife about it properly. Um, and, uh, you know, that was really the beginning of, of, you know, the conversation about us moving back. 
uh, and and everything that it's 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 meant to us as a family. But you know, then there's also the business element to everything as well. And as well as the Philippines being as great as it has been to me as a business owner, my peer group here is pretty small. There aren't many other entrepreneurs that I can converse with on a daily basis here in Cebu City. And so, you know, I've I've been, you know, very, very uh, blessed to be able to travel to the US and speak and do all that stuff over there and meet great people like Pat and Lewis and, you know, all the other great friends that I've become very, very close with over the years. And all of them say, you know, why don't you come? I had Michael and Gail Hyatt literally over a dinner table last year. You know, come live in Franklin. <laughs> come live in Tennessee. And and then, you know, <laughs> and then the next minute don't I've got... Do, don't do that. I know, I know. Don't I know. do that. Well, actually, I'm telling you, I had a great it's time. Nice. I, it's I a beautiful place. Yeah. But I don't think I could, I don't think I could be there. I think if I was ever to live in the US, I think it would be one or two cities. I don't think I know. It would be San Diego, number one, because of the weather and because of the Flynn's, plain and simple. And number two, New York. And I know you'll appreciate mm-hmm. that being a New Yorker. Um, yeah. New York, I've had a lot of really, really good fond memories in New York over the years, both uh, as, as a traveling business guy and, you know, also as a you know, a family holiday destination several times and, and all that sort of type of thing. It's the culture of New York. It's the people, you know, the, you know, I just, there's something about New York. It reminds me a lot of London as well, New York. Yeah, dude, it's the center of the universe. I mean, let's be honest, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is what, what made me pay attention to you was when you started something a few years back, which I think was around 2010, which was something called Virtual CEO. You were vlogging about how in 365 days, you're not going to be physically tied to your job. You're not going to go into the office anymore. And here's what excited me. And this is what, I don't even know if you know this, but here's what excited me about it. I don't know that we ever, we've ever talked about this, but... I'm intrigued. Okay, so I've been a chiropractor for the last 25 years, right? That's been my primary source of income. Well, look, what I wanted, what I really wanted to be doing was traveling around the world, you know, shooting more travel videos like we were doing with Jet Set Life. So I would find these pockets, you know, where I'd get a doc to come in to cover me and I'd go away for a week or two. We shoot some videos and it was great, but I never physically was able to do it. So watching you go through this process was very inspiring to me, but it was so challenging in my world to be able to do it. And it wasn't until two years ago that I finally was able to do it. I mean, it literally took me until two years ago where I found the right doc, the right systems that now I go into the office whenever I choose. If I want to do a month in Greece, no problem. We just booked another month in Italy. It's not an issue and system set up. So what were the steps in retrospect now that got you to be able, because a lot of people listening to this still have brick and mortar businesses that they're tied to. I mean, I don't care if you're a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, we just do. So what were the steps that got you out of it in retrospect? Dude, I mean, this this is literally a, a, a six-hour conversation that you've mm. asked to unravel here. I mean, it was it was not one thing or a few things. It was a whole bunch of things. The overall encompassing you know, nature of the entire year of 2010 was me getting the hell out of my own way quite frankly, stop believing my own BS and genuinely start bringing on board people that could do jobs and, and, and tasks way better than I could. You know, the old adage of, um, you know, if you want something done properly, you got to do it yourself. You know, all this kind of crap. And it, it just, you know, when I look back at all of the email threads that I was in before that year and all the things I was, I mean, I, you know, I hired eight people in 2010 to replace myself. Eight. That's stupid. The fact that I was doing eight people's jobs was ridiculous from a business owner perspective. Um, And, you know, I I think it really was honestly just getting over myself and understanding that there were people out there that could do a job just as well as me or 
much better than me. So if they were doing it just as well as me, then I would bring them on board because I didn't want to do that job anymore. I hated doing that job or I would procrastinate doing that job. Or if they could do a job much better than me, then I'd bring them on board because if a job is done better, then I'm going to serve my clients better. I'm going to end up making more money. And so um, it really, I mean, it was it was a one year long journey of learning how to get out of my own way. Plain simple. Was putting the clock on it one of the leverage points that got it to happen faster? I think it certainly helped, particularly because January 2010 was, like you said, when I started blogging and podcasting. And so, you know, it was important for me to kind of hold myself accountable publicly to a growing, you know, subscriber base, quite frankly, of, of the blog and the show. And, and by the end of the year, I, I remember it was sort of probably around about middle of September and I was beginning to ask myself, crap, am I actually going to hit this? goal? Am I going to do it or not? And we ended up actually doing it right at the end of November of 2010. We made that last hire. And that was a hire for a GM that I wanted to hire. I think the initial month for that role to be hired was April or May. And I just couldn't find the right person. And uh, you know, it took us another six months to find them, but we eventually did. So yeah, you know, it was one of those things. But I think it definitely helped for sure. What I think is so incredible about this, and it was a lesson for me in a couple of different areas, because you were so authentic, you were so authentically you, I think is probably the good way to put it. I, I think a lot of guys like me were following you and going, shit, man, I'm, I'm stuck in this place and I want to get out too. And every day you, you vlogged and blogged about the struggles that you were having, how you were doing it. And then I remember when it all came to an end, and I remember it very vi vividly. Your, your kids were very, very young. And I remember I was in my office sweating over back pain patients. And I saw on uh, a video you splashing around in the pool with your kids drinking a martini. <laughs> and I remember saying to myself, fuck him. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah, you and, a, you and a whole bunch of other people probably as well. You know, the, the funny thing is, though, the funny thing is, I don't know whether you know this or not. You probably do. You know everything else about me, clearly. Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually had to have spine surgery in the middle of 2012. I had a L5-S1 fusion done. I remember. And, you know, that was an old injury, uh, a basketball injury, actually, from the very early, uh, I would say probably 2003, 2004-ish, that then kind of came back to haunt me as uh, we moved into a new house. And all I was doing was just literally dragging a dining room chair. It wasn't even a heavy kind of lazy boy or anything. And I just, I guess I just, it, it just set that disc out and, and that was it. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of, you know, fixing it and I'd had chiropractor. I love chiro going to the chiropractor. I love getting all straightened out and everything. I do it at least once a month now just to keep things in check, so to speak. But, um, I, I, I remember thinking I can't do a whole year. They were saying like a year of physio and, you know, all this sort of, I just can't can't do it. I'm too young. My kids are too young. I got to do the surgery. I've got to recover and I've got to get over it. And, uh, you know, that was, um, it was a pretty defining moment actually, because, uh, although I have gone back to, you know, exercise and all the rest of it, I'm not as active as I used to be. Um, I don't play competitive ball anymore. Not that I was NBA standard or anything, but I used to scrimmage a couple times a week with, you know, the local club here and everything. And, um, you know, now, now I am a little fearful, quite frankly, of having another injury or have, you know, doing, doing the disc right above my L5S1. My L5L4 is apparently a little weak based on an MRI from around about, um, you know, five years or so ago. So I've, I'm just being very, very careful nowadays, you know? All right, so I'm going to give you a little piece of advice, and for anybody listening as well, um, I want you to read, and I won't go into great detail here, well, maybe we'll do another podcast on it, but um, I want you to read a book called Healing Back Pain by John Sarno. Um, he's a 90-year-old um, orthopedic doc who just recently passed. He is responsible for healing back pain for the likes of Howard Stern, uh, John Stossel from 2020. The list goes on and on and on. 
the head writer for Billions. If you Google his name and the book and just YouTube it, you will find videos that'll blow you away. I want you to read that book and either one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to say to me, this is the biggest bunch of bullshit I've ever read (laughs) in my life, or you're going to say to me, perfect sense, I'm going to do it. So I'm going to leave that carrot dangling and I want you to report back. I will do it. I'll pick it up for sure. I want to dig in a little bit to some of the darker periods in your life and how you've overcome them. Because I think it's easy for people to look at you on the internet and say, you know, I see this guy drinking a, you know, a little, uh, a little shot of scotch at night, you know, listening to some jazz and looks like he's having the time of his (laughs) life. And he's got these events going on and he's got book. He's doing book tours. He's back and forth between London and the Philippines and the U.S. And he's he's friends with the famous Pat <laughs> Flynn. I mean, well, you know, he's Flynn got it all famous, figured is, out, Pat, right? Pat Flynn is, is friends with the famous Chris Ducker. Let's not, yeah. Oh, so it's yeah, the, I, I, got it, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. <laughs> so walk us through some of the darker times that you've had building your business and what you were able to do to get yourself out of it. Is there a particular story that comes to mind where you're like, oh, God. This is this one's not good. Well, I mean, I remember after about six months of being in business, we we got screwed by a client, quite frankly, and didn't get paid. And I remember it was a Friday night. I got onto our internet banking for the company and I looked at the corporate account and I figured that we only had enough money for maybe two payroll periods. So basically a month. We had about 15 people working for us at the time. It was still early days, you know. I had to I had to make a decision right there and then that night. I called everybody uh you know in into a meeting and we sat down and I said look guys I uh I'm going to have to put everything on pause. Nobody's losing their jobs, but you're on pause. And that they they do actually have a a legal uh way of doing that here in the Philippines. It's called the floating status. I I said to him like, you know, give me um give me 4 weeks maximum. And I'll bring you all back on again, and it'll it'll be like there's never been any change. But I need to go back to the drawing board. I need to do what I know I do best, and that is hit the phones and bring in some new business. And so for about three weeks, I worked the graveyard shift. I would go into work at about 10 p.m., and I would work through to around 4 or 5 in the morning just hitting the phones. Every email that we got in, every inquiry would come to our website and any, any, I would just Google companies that I thought might be interested in outsourcing customer service or lead generation or whatever. And I would just cold call people. Um, and within a few weeks, I, I had gotten enough business to bring everybody back on board and we had avoided bankruptcy, quite frankly, after just six months of business. So that was certainly a, a dark time, um, you know, from a, from an entrepreneurial, I think that's really the only really kind of scare, really horribly scary moment in my career as an entrepreneur. You know, we've had issues and, and challenges over the over the years, obviously, but uh, nothing has come anywhere close to potentially losing a business six months throwing everything that you've got into it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Are there any particular struggles that you're currently facing or, or even behaviors that you're trying to change that you're willing to share? I I think I'm in a pretty good spot right now. Um, I am. I would I would say doing what I'm doing with everything relating to the Upreneur brand, with the book and the community, the events, the high level coaching, everything that I do on that. I can hold my hand on my heart and say I've never been as happier as I am today as an entrepreneur. I'm working with the type of people that I know. I can impact the most and affect change for the most in positive ways. And uh, I think that comes through on a daily basis with everything that I do with my work. Um, You know, the, the one thing that I always, you know, kind of, you know, kind of sometimes slip back into is that micromanager role every now and then with just maybe two or three members of my staff. I kind of, I start just kind of looking at them a little bit too close from time to time. And, and you know, they know me well enough by now to sort of turn around and say, hey, 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 step back. You know, this is my, this is my money, my paycheck right here. Leave me alone kind of thing. So I, I still, I still struggle with that from time to time, but it's uh, very few and far between. And generally speaking, um, I don't have any major issues right now. Well, the good news is that you're aware um, when you do that, so you can interrupt your own pattern and go, oh, 
I'm doing that thing again. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, okay. So you've alluded to this a couple of times and I want to talk about it. You coined a term called youpreneur and you've now written a book on it. You recently did a book tour on it. What is youpreneur exactly? Well, youpreneur is, is somebody that is ultimately building a business based around them, their personality, their experience, and the people that they want to serve. So it's people like coaches, consultants, content creators, you know, uh, speakers, authors, anybody really building a business based around what they know and what they want to be known for. Uh, and this came about, you know, because, you know, after Virtual Starfinder launched and the first book came out and everything was switched over to chrisducker.com back in 2013 or sorry, 2012. And, you know, I really started focusing in on my own personal brand. People started to come to me. They started to want to know how I was doing it, how I was building, you know, the brand of me. And I did my first ever keynote uh, at a conference in Vegas in January of 2014 on the subject of the business of you. And it stayed with me since I think I've done that keynote now in some way, shape or form, probably close to 30 times worldwide since. It's something that I'm very passionate about now. I mean, I, that word gets thrown around a lot nowadays. Uh, but I'm genuinely passionate about helping people build profitable, future-proof businesses around their brands. If you're not making money out of it. It's just a hobby. You don't need another hobby. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, if, you, uh, yeah, if, for sure. if you're doing what you're doing, um, based on your, you know, 10, 15, even five years of experience, there are people out there that will pay you to download your experience level, quite frankly. Um, and, uh, if you're not, if you're not monetizing that expertise whilst you're helping people out, then, you know, you're a bigger fool than you probably look. Yeah. There's a lot of bullshit around it too. There's people renting, you know, uh, $4,000 a day Ferraris and standing in front of houses that they don't own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, those people will be here today, gone tomorrow. That's important. Yeah, the flash in the pants. Yeah, I, I don't have, you know, they're the kind of people that I have no, you know, no inclination and wanting to know anything about or care for in, in any way, shape or form. They're, they're not, um, they're not helping themselves and not helping people that come into contact with them. And I'm, you know, I'm all about the long game. Yeah, yep, for sure. So I want to talk to you about this podcast is called Work Hard, Play Hard. So what we just kind of covered is some specific strategies, say that three times quick, on working hard and some different things that you've done. But I want to move on to the play hard section of the show, which I really define as anything outside of work. It's kind of like I don't know Gary V, but I kind of feel like it's the anti-Gary V. You know, everything is crush it, crush it, crush it. You know, let's work until we're, you know, until we got blood dripping down our ears. So, you know, if you had a magic wand, describe for me in detail what play hard would look like to you. I mean, first and foremost, always it's about spending time with my kids. Um, uh, you know, and you'll get this as a dad, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. For me, a great day out is, you know, hitting up a museum with the kids, maybe the science museum or something geeky. It's making lots of Lego sets. It's, uh, you know, floating around in the pool with my little girl. It's, you know, going shopping with my not so little girl. I know you can probably understand mm -hmm. where I'm coming from on that yep. one as well. Um, yep. You know, for me, it's about my kids. Play hard for me now is all about my kids above and beyond everything and anything else. Close second is the missus, obviously. Um, any kind of time where we can get away for a long weekend, we can get grandma and granddad come around and babysit and that kind of stuff. We're on that like a ferret up a trouser leg. I mean, you know, we're, we're, all, we're, all, we're all over it. We're all over it. And oh so, my God, I just slapped my knee because I felt the ferret climbing up, but that was crazy. You just imp you just implanted that in my there brain. There you go. There you go. Um, so, you know, my grandfather used to say that quite a lot, actually. Um, but no, I, I think I think that um, you know, it's it, for me nowadays. It's all about family. But you know, that being said, you know, the flip side of that coin, uh, maybe a little quite selfishly, is you know, I do. I love my live music. I love going to events. I saw Phil Collins last year for the first time in my life, and totally wow. freaked out. Like, like, I I, you know, he eluded me in in the late eighties and early nineties, and I never got the opportunity to see him perform. And he was performing at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Uh, I had no trip to the UK planned, but I bought the tickets anyway and then ended up sticking a speaking gig either side 
side of his concert, which was brilliant. I just, I love music. I love what music does to me and makes me feel. Um, again, a big blue, you know, for me, nothing more fun music wise than sitting in a great blues bar somewhere, drinking incredible bourbon and just closing my eyes and listening to that bass line and that harmonica. I mean, for me, you know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, you've inspired me to listen to jazz. Just watching some of your videos, just sitting there listening to jazz, I was like, okay, let's see what the, all this is about. And I got to tell you, man, it's a, it with a little glass of bourbon or scotch or something, listening feels good. And when you when you do it in a live setting as well, and there's people around you, and they're all enjoying the music, and it's not the kind of bar where there's going to be fights breaking out or any idiot coming on to your girl or anything like that. Like it's you know. It, you, everyone that goes to that kind of club is there just for the music. That's it. It's the only reason they go to, you know, that kind of bar. So it's a different vibe. When was the last time that you played hard where you really felt that you played all out and you forgot about work? Mm, that would probably be Hong Kong late 90s. Like we're talking full on weeks at a time hardcore, going out every night, dancing, singing with... I mean, I used to sing in a, in, in a blues and soul band. So, I mean, I used to jam with bands all over, you know, Hong Kong and, and hanging out on movie sets and shooting behind the scenes stuff for documentaries and just, yeah, just just all the fun stuff, you know? Oh, what I wouldn't do to get my hand on a video of you singing in the jazz bands. Oh, d dude, I'm sure if you look... In fact, actually, I know for a fact that there is a video of me singing Hoochie Coochie Man with <laughs> Michael O'Neill playing drums at Tropical Think Tank. We did it a few years together. We had a live band on our closing white party, and uh, we got up and, and we did uh, two or three tracks together, actually. Mike's an incredible drummer. And yeah, we, we, we dropped it, man. You want to go and check it out? It's on my YouTube channel. It's probably a good, good few years back in there, but you'll find it. Just type in Uchi Kuchi. Okay. You'll get it. <laughs> All right, I'm going to put that into the show notes. When was the last time that you cried tears of joy? I mean, really, where you were like, I... I am so freaking happy that like I could cry. When was the last time you remember that? Explicitly, I remember it. Christmas Day, just gone. My daughter, Cassandra, was about two months old. And for the first time, she had fallen asleep right on top of my chest as I laid back in the Lazy Boy watching The Empire Strikes Back. It was a very memorable, memorable moment for me, you know, to be able to just have her just completely fall asleep on me, and to kind of feel that kind of level of comfort and security, I guess, for her to just kind. Of, and she, I mean, she was good, like the whole film; she didn't move <laughs> the whole film. There's not a father listening to that that didn't just get chills and go yeah. back to that moment. Yeah, and I did. I, I, I genuinely, I genuinely cried. I, my, my, my wife was just on the other side of the room. I think she was chatting with her sister or something that was around and she came over and she just looked at me and the tears just started streaming down my face. Yeah. Uh, but she very quickly got me a glass of single malt and that set me straight. It <laughs> <laughs> made you go into the ugly cry, one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the thing that your soul has been really calling you to do, but for whatever reason, you just haven't pulled the trigger on it? Oh, I can tell you I'm going to pull this trigger very, very soon. And that is um, when I'm back in the UK, I'm actually going to be starting a charity that focuses on teaching entrepreneurship to children. And uh, we're talking like full-blown UK-wide tours. We've already got uh, a lot of people in, in interested in, in setting up shop with us in sort of pop-up uh, workshop and seminar type scenarios and things like that. And uh, I'm, I'm, I am... I'm going to single-handedly spearhead the next generation of entrepreneurs in the UK. Uh, and I'm, I'm so excited about it. We've got a complete book series planned with my son doing all the drawings. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just going to, we're going to rock it out, man. We're going to rock it out. It's going to be great. I can't wait to get stuck into it. Yeah, yeah that's going to be incredible. Do you have a, uh, a vision board? I don't. I've never done it. Interesting. Believe it or not. Do you know the, co the common theme, the high... <laughs> 
These things are so counterintuitive. The higher the individual is, the more I find they don't have vision boards, which is so interesting. Yeah, I just, I mean, I I get it. I can understand um, why people do it. I don't look down on people who put them together or anything like that. But uh, I just, I've never felt the need to have to do it. You know, I know what my goals are. I know what I want to achieve and and how and when I want to do it. And uh, I've just never never gone there to be honest what trip has been on your bucket list that you really really want to take <laughs> um there's a few man uh i think I, I mean if i can if i can if i can be selfish first and foremost chicago i want to do all the i want to do all the blues bars i want to mm. eat all the pizza and consume all the bourbon and listen to all the musicians in chicago that's always been a big thing for me i had another one on my list uh, for a while which was new orleans because of the french quarter and all the amazing uh, musicians and everything down there but i actually knocked that one off the list a few years ago when i was asked to uh, do the closing keynote at uh, the fincon uh, expo which was great but yeah that's the selfish one the other one that we haven't done yet uh, it's the only disney park we haven't visited on the planet and that's uh world in in florida we haven't done it the reason why we've not done it is because i think i like to tag a lot of these things on the end of business trips i feel like it's a nice reward i bring the family with me they do their thing for a few days while i'm doing my thing and then we kind of go and do you know you know the anaheim park or you know we'll do something else or whatever uh, but i've also heard from a number of people that have done walt disney world that it's a good seven to ten days to really do it properly and so we will you know now that we've got cassandra's maybe a little hard with a tiny little baby might have to wait a few years to do it properly but uh, we will we'll knock that one off the list at some point i'm sure so you got a lot coming at you, right? A lot of businesses, entrepreneurial ADD, shiny ball syndrome. What's the top thing that you do to clear the brain chatter and drown out the noise of the outside world to kind of like reset the cash? You know, I go back to music. I listen to a lot of music. Uh, you know, I, I don't read that much fiction when I, I probably average a couple of books a month, but they're mostly either business-related books or their autobiographies, one or the other. And, uh, yeah, music for me is my, uh, is my kind of bandwidth reset place, I think. You know, if, if I'm not listening to an old Robert Johnson, you know, track, I'll be listening to Brother Ray Charles or, uh, you know, to Diana Ross or little, little Stevie Wonder, you know, something, something to just completely take me out of it completely and music has, has always done that uh, for me uh, always probably will do quite frankly all right let's move into the rapid fire round answer as quickly or as slowly as you like what would your friends say is one of your superpowers i would say i'm a very skilled connector of people i think they i think everybody would say that about me actually what one thing are you afraid of now I think I'm probably afraid, honestly, I'm probably afraid of screwing my back up again in some way, shape or form. Because I've got a sneaky feeling here I am all these years later on, it might be a lot harder for me to recover this time around properly. Um, and that, that scares me quite a bit, actually, of, of being out for, you know, being out for a, a certain period of time because of an injury like that. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? <laughs> you know what? I've never been a best man. I think I'd be a freaking amazing (laughs) best man. Like I would rock out the bachelor party like, like you wouldn't believe. And I would give one of the world's greatest best man speeches. I'm a hundred percent sure of that. I've never been asked. Um, And I, I think... The reason why is because, you know, a couple of lifelong friends that I do have, I've been very, very, very blessed to have two friends that I've known since, you know, I was 12, 13 years old. Both of them got married when I was already here in the Philippines. And we kind of, you know, we didn't go our own ways or anything like that. We just weren't in as touch uh, in that first six or seven years of me being here as we had been in the past and as we are now. And so I guess that's probably the reason why, but I'd love to be a best man. I'd be a great best man. You would. What is the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but never will? (laughs) 
all my books. Yeah. I, can't, I mean, I give them away from time to time. I got so many books, Rob. I don't know, maybe 400. More, more, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. We've had this discussion. Am I bringing them to the UK? I think I'm going to have to pair them back quite, quite heavily. <laughs> All right. And the last question, if you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do or have a passion for or anything else, what would it be? I would love to do a TED Talk on the, the life and the lessons of Bruce Lee. That would be amazing. Yeah, I'd go deep into that. I've been following Bruce ever since I was a 12-year-old scrawny little kid in London. And uh, I know I know more about Bruce Lee than most people you'll ever come in contact with. I'd love to get stuck into something like that. Well, how we begin is how we end with Bruce Lee. So do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Well, I mean, you know what? If they want to find out a little bit more about me and what I'm all about, they can head over to chrisducker.com. That's where I blog and podcast on a weekly basis. But, uh, you know, I would just say just continue to do your, your own thing your own way and don't expect for it to drop into your lap. You've got to chase it down. That's what it's all about. Dude, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, brother. It was great to be on. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 